Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. And welcome to episode 95. It really is a pleasure to have you here. You will recall that in the last episode of The Blind Side, we spoke with Katie Frederick about the ACB convention. And I said to you that on this episode, we were going to be talking about NFB. And that was the intention, except that my guest, Dan Fry, and I had a marathon talk about a wide range of things. And so we are going to postpone the NFB part of that discussion to next week because the interview is actually too long to play on a single podcast and expect you to keep focused. So we'll split it into two episodes and we'll come back and talk with Dan next week. In this edition of The Blind Side, I'm going to be talking to Dan Fry about his interesting career, about his thoughts on consumerism and advocacy, and also for the first time, Dan is speaking publicly following his ousting by the new Governor of New Jersey as the Executive Director of the New Jersey Commission for the Blind. So that's all coming up on what is going to be a fascinating interview. I really enjoyed sitting down and having a chat to Dan, who also spent time in New Zealand for a while out here. So if you're interested in the perspective of an American who's come to live and work in New Zealand for a while, stay tuned for that as well. We have a few listener comments that I do want to get in and some that I will save given the length of this episode already. But if you would like to contribute, you're really welcome to do so. And we play a selection on each episode. 719 5114 is the number of the feedback line 719-270-5114 you can also drop me an email and in that email you can write something down or you can attach an audio clip either is fine and the address for that is the blind side all joined together at mosen.org that's the blind side at mosen.org good afternoon hello jonathan my name is sharon strakowski i'm calling from worcester massachusetts and i've just started listening to your podcast and i'm enjoying it very much uh i did attend the acb convention and i would say that i agreed a lot with katie um i did find the hotel extremely difficult it was very large and lots of little clumps of stairs and half flights and uh also there was some construction going on as they were creating a new aquarium and obviously the committee had no way of knowing that was going to happen when they contracted uh with the hotel so it was a little difficult in that way with regard to term limits i'm divided about that i think they're important but i wonder if we might do something maybe like 10 years or so for the term limits instead of six for officers um, because I think there's so much to accomplish and it takes a while to really get into it. I serve on the scholarship committee for ACB and we do not have term limits there. And I think that's been a value because you learn over the years what to look for in students and how to interview and that sort of thing. My final thing is that I would, would like to give my regards to Bonnie. Um, Bonnie worked at Mass Commission for the Blind, as do I, and so we spent a chunk of time together at VR meetings, vocational rehab meetings. So please do give her my regards. Thank you very much, Sharon. And thank you or something for putting a song in my head. I'm now going around singing, this is the dawning of the age of aquarium <laughs> or something. Yes, Bonnie says hi back, by the way. She does remember you. And she's actually having a really immersive experience at the moment. She's on a marae, which is the uh, Maori indigenous people of New Zealand's kind of place to meet, meet and 
uh, entertain and it's a kind of a central community point and as part of her journalism course she's having a Maori marae immersion experience right now so it might be good to get her on the blind side sometime to uh, get her perspective on that hello jonathan uh, long time listener first time caller to the podcast um thanks for putting this resource out there uh, a lot of informative topics on here i was at the NFB convention in Orlando. And the interesting thing that I found from the convention is for the first time as I walked through the exhibit hall, I was interested in having or purchasing uh, more stuff that was made by mainstream companies than that of the access technology companies. It was cool to see a presence um, at the convention by um, the likes of Google and Amazon and Microsoft. Microsoft had a lot of stuff and really enjoyed some of the things that they did. Um, the other thing that was intriguing was the low-cost Braille options, uh, such as the Orbit and the Braille B. Um, and so um, just seeing that those options are out there, that will help a lot of my clients who do not have a lot of funds to play with uh, when getting different products. Uh, I thought it was a good convention. Uh, as always, um, I've never been diagnosed with NAN24, but uh, it does kind of mess with your sleep schedule, and I'm still trying to get back on track. Mm, the good old melatonin, eh? Not that I'm prescribing. No, Dr. Jonathan's not prescribing, but it does help a lot, doesn't it? Here's Jane, and she says, I just paused the interview you did with Katie Frederick from the ACB when you began talking about self-driving cars, and I heard a reaction to the idea of having one. Since I have never driven a car for more than a few minutes at a time, a high school friend who will remain anonymous <laughs> let me drive in an empty parking lot and my dad let me drive back and forth down an empty road as a high school graduation present, I can't say I have any experience of what it must be like to drive in traffic. But I am behind the concept of owning one for a few reasons. One, Eric is not comfortable driving. That's Jane's husband. I know this because she listens to the Mosin Explosion. Two, we are fortunate now to live in a city with pretty good public transportation, but back then... When Eric was trying to learn to drive, there was no public transportation. You either took a cab or walked. If you were blind or otherwise disabled, you could book a paratransit ride at least two weeks in advance, and the driver would arrive two weeks early or two weeks late for your scheduled appointment. I am not joking. In all my years in Tennessee, they were only on time once. A self-driving car would help with that. Three Having a self-driving car would allow us more freedom to go wherever and whenever we wished without having to factor in additional time for public transit. The trade-off is, of course, having to make time for traffic, but that happens on buses anyway. That said, when we go the self-driving car route, there needs to be a way that we stay engaged and alert while the car is getting us to where we are going. And one way to do that would be to do something that the SEPTA, which apparently stands for Southeastern Public Transportation Authority of Southeastern Pennsylvania, trolley drivers have. They have a switch in one of their pedals. I forget which one. 
so that if their foot comes off it for any reason, the vehicle stops. It doesn't mean they have to be pressing the pedal down, they just have to have a foot on it. I asked them about this once out of curiosity. Even if we aren't supposed to push down on the pedal, keeping one foot on it would force us to stay alert. That's one way. There are probably other ways I haven't thought of. But staying alert and aware in the vehicle is important. Even now, drivers are supposed to remain alert and aware at the wheel, and that should not change just because we are letting the car drive itself. There need to be procedures we can learn at a pinch where we can manually take over long enough to get the car off the road at least, so we can call for assistance and not be in traffic. That's one thing I liked about what the NFB was working on. I think a combination of self-driving, along with backup procedures just in case, is probably the best compromise we can get. How do we see to it that as many blind people who can benefit from this technology as possible get access to it? The hardest barrier for most blind people to overcome is employment. Getting to job interviews and job training can be a nightmare if you're struggling to have enough money on hand to keep up with transportation costs and pay your bills and have enough to eat. Should the state government be required to help blind people get a car? Could they then just snatch it back if the person failed to gain employment? We do try, but it takes years and years to get a job, and then it can take a while to make sure you can keep that job. It's a wonderful idea, but we don't need to increase the divide between haves and the have-nots. And if this is going to happen, it needs to be made available to as many people as possible. Thanks for the comment, Jane, and I'm sure there'll be some feedback on those thoughts. One fun thing, because we don't always have to be terribly serious and austere in talking about the big issues, do we? You talked about how you have driven, and I've driven as well. Um, my kid's mum's dad, in other words, he used to be my father-in-law, he would let me drive. He he was the conservation officer on a beautiful island out in the Hauraki Gulf in Auckland called Tiritiri Matangi. And it used to be a lighthouse. Well, that's what it was there for. Um, so he was the lighthouse keeper. They still have the lighthouse there, but it's automated now. And they cleaned up the island and they planted it in beautiful native New Zealand bush and put rare New Zealand birds on it. It's the most beautiful place in the world, in my opinion. And uh, anyway, he, he was the conservation officer. He got converted from being the lighthouse keeper to the conservation officer. And we'd go there quite regularly. And he'd let me drive all sorts of things, you know, tractors and things around the island because there really is nothing to bump into. I also have two sisters who are married to brothers on huge, I mean, huge, huge farms. And you can just drive and drive and, and not bump into anything. So I've driven quad bikes and tractors and things on the farm as well. And it is fun. So maybe you'd like to tell us some of your blind driving stories. A lot of us have had a go at it, right? That could be a really fun thing to hear your blind driving stories. Regarding the blind man and the police officer, Marissa says, from what I listened to on the podcast, I cannot imagine how frustrating it must have been for the gentleman to have had to keep repeating he is blind and that finally, when the prosthetic device popped out of his eye, did the officer realise this to be the case? To me, she says, it's sad that society doesn't understand blindness. Everyone is unaware of the struggles we face. The fact that there are varying levels of blindness from total darkness to only being able to read the big E on the eye chart 
only having light perception, not being able to make out details, you get the picture. I've had people speak to me slower and louder, as if blindness or legal blindness is some type of disease, although I think it's important that we educate as much as possible. It's also important, at least in my view, that people who are blind, legally blind, have their cane visible when they are out in the community. Although I personally do not use my cane when I am with my family, working on that aspect, I always use it when I'm travelling by myself and I feel more confident and I also know that having it with me gives people sometimes a greater understanding that I cannot see as well as they can. We as the blind and visually impaired often set limits for ourselves. I know I have been guilty of it, and I get surprised when we can accomplish and complete things just as well as, if not better than, the sighted community. All it takes is a bit of willpower and specialised training, either from training centres or from people that are certified in assisting the blind. Thanks, Marissa. Good to hear from you. And finally, in comments this week, Daryl Hillicker says, I thought your listeners would like to know there are currently some significant limitations to the accessible Cisco 8800 phones. Allison's employer relies on a third-party hosting service. While the Cisco 8800 phones can certainly be used with that service, they're not currently accessible in that implementation. The accessible firmware for the Cisco 8800 phones works only with Cisco's own proprietary unified communication manager. Cisco representatives have repeatedly assured us that accessibility is on the horizon for third-party hosted configurations, but no time frame has been given. Our place, our issues. The Blind Side with Jonathan Mosen. Our guest on The Blind Side this week is somebody who has held many professions in many places. He's been associated with the Randolph Shepherd program. He's been a director of a state agency. He's worked for the National Federation of the Blind. He has even spent some time out here in New Zealand, which is how I got to know him. Dan Fry joins me from New Jersey. Welcome, Dan. Good to have you on The Blind Side. Delighted to be with you, Jonathan. Thank you. Tell me a bit about you. You have a legal background, correct? You studied in the law? I did. Um, My undergraduate degree uh, was at a small uh, four-year liberal arts institution called Erskine College in the metropolis of Due West, South Carolina. I earned a degree in history there with a minor in government and English. And then I went to the Pacific Northwest to Seattle uh, and earned my Juris Doctorate at the University of Washington School of Law. What is it about the law that intrigued you so much? It's funny. Um, when I was growing up uh, on a farm uh, reared by my paternal grandparents, uh, and I observed that my grandfather was a mechanic and a farmer, uh, and that everyone around me in my blue-collar environment uh, were people who were doing things with their hands and uh, exercising a lot of physical labor, uh, I knew that I probably would never be equipped to do that, not because I was blind, but simply because it wasn't sort of consistent with my uh, personal preferences, though blindness may have had some part to play in it as well. And so I did a lot of reading um, because my grandfather and grandparents, based on their understanding of what I could do as a blind person, uh, had me live a fairly constricted, restricted life uh, on our farm. So I did a lot of reading, and I came to the conclusion fairly young that 
Uh, I wanted to impact uh, our world at a social and policy level, and that the best way to achieve that, it seemed to me, uh, was to be a social architect through mastery of the law. Uh, it was clear that legislation and policy and and the like could be best manipulated through an understanding of the law and that that would enable me to to affect the kind of change I wanted to um, in a way that would allow me to use my mind and not my hands. And you are a member of the National Federation of the Blind, and that's one of the things we're going to be talking about in this interview. But it strikes me that your story is remarkably similar to that of Kenneth Jernigan's, other than the fact that he was discouraged from taking up the law, so he took uh, other studies. I I think there are parallels between my life experience and, and that of Dr. Jernigan. Um, I, I grew up uh, in an isolated farming community after my parents passed away uh, when I was uh, mother at 10 and father at 12 uh, from a car accident and heart attack, respectively. And my sister, Debbie, and I were sent to live with our paternal grandparents, and we experienced a pretty dramatic cultural shift from living in the outskirts of Austin, Texas, where I had spent the first uh, years of my um, elementary education at the School for the Blind and then moved into mainstreaming uh, all, and then moved very abruptly to a little community called Cedar Creek, South Carolina, between Florence and Myrtle Beach. But it was a... Uh, a tobacco farming community. My parent, my grandparents um, had both a fourth grade education. Uh, they loved me very much. Uh, they expected my sister to perform significantly more of the work than I was allowed to perform, which obviously created uh, palpable tension. Um, but Deb didn't understand that it was it was very discouraging to me not to be allowed to do it. And it made me wonder not only if I couldn't do those things that she was doing, but it made me, it made me second guess whether or not I'd be able to achieve anything. And then at the School for the Blind, which I was sent to uh, when I went there, even though I had been in public school for uh, three years before my parents passed away, I was sent to the School for the Blind because my grandparents were told, and they didn't have the advocacy skills to, to resist this, uh, that there was not a suitable way to educate me in, in South Carolina. But if there was any advantage in being sent 300 miles north to the School for the Blind, um, it was that I encountered people uh, in the National Federation of the Blind, Donald Capps, who many will know, um, uh, started the first junior chapter of the NFB uh, on a School for the Blind campus. And he sat me down and he said, Dan, what do you think we believe? And I said, I'm not really sure. And he said, have you ever been told you can't do anything? And I said, repeatedly. And I explained to him that my grandfather would often take all of my cousins, including my sister, fishing. It was kind of a rite of passage. Um, and I asked when I would have the opportunity. And finally, my grandmother conceded that my grandfather didn't want to be responsible for managing a blind child on the water. And Mr. Cap said, 
let's make sure that you can go fishing. And he didn't take me fishing. Uh, that wasn't his way. But he made sure that I had access to a fishing pole. And he said, the NFB is going to be for you um, something incredibly uh, eye-opening in the sense that we're going to dispute every social misconception that you've encountered so far that has told you you can't succeed. Um, and I talked to him about the fact that we would sit around Sunday dinner and Grandpa would ask us what we all wanted to achieve. And like every child who wants to emulate his parents, I said, I want to be a policeman. And he, he slapped me and he said, don't be ridiculous, you can't see. And I said, fine, I'll be a lawyer. And he sent me to my room for being sassy. And Don Cap said, but you can be a lawyer. There's no reason you can't be a lawyer if that's what you want to be. And so the NFB for me, uh, at age 13, um, played a tremendously pivotal and positive role in my life, uh, making sure that the isolation I experienced, uh, and it wasn't intended to be abusive, but had the potential to certainly be um, uh, limiting, uh, was not limiting because I had access to people at the School for the Blind who were able to counteract my grandparents' um, misunderstandings about blindness. And again, they knew me through my father, but when my father and mother were alive, mom and dad were able to um, somewhat facilitate my relationship with my grandparents because they were responsible for the day-to-day -day things. When they passed away and grandma and granddad became responsible for me, I had to deal with their expectations of blindness and the NFB for me was uh, a, welcome, uh, a welcome group of human beings who explained to me that there was hope and that uh, ambition was something that I had a right to relish. When did you attend your first convention? My first convention was when I was 17 years old uh, as a senior in high school. Um, I had emancipated myself from my grandparents' care about two years before and through an uh, interesting array of uh, mentorship from the principal at the School for the Blind and doing some nighttime work, I stayed at the School for the Blind uh, with adult supervision. But at age 17, uh, with the mentorship of some folks, from the NFB, I went to my first convention in 1985, and it was amazing to come into an environment where everyone I encountered believed what I believed about what I could achieve, um, felt optimistic, but it was also a huge, uh, a huge learning experience because I hadn't had opportunities to go into a first-class restaurant. I grew up poor, and it was sitting at a table with mentors in the NFB who didn't know they were mentoring me, but and, and observing what they did when there were three knives and two forks that I learned how to, to I learned public etiquette and the like. Um, it was it was amazing at 17 to walk into the Galt House Hotel in Louisville and and be in a place 
that was so dramatically different from our one-bedroom shotgun shack in, in the low country of South Carolina. And then I could not afford to go to uh, another NFB convention while I was in undergraduate school. But from 1989 consecutively, um, I've attended all conventions up until the one we just concluded in 2018. Some people say that the NFB is a little on the extreme side, but I wonder whether you think that perhaps that is a deliberate strategy to counteract so much of the negativity that blind people tend to be exposed to for the rest of the year round. You know, they go to convention and they almost get this extreme dose of positivism to stand them in good stead for the rest of the year. Is is that fair? Is that a little bit cynical on my part? I've often heard, um, Jonathan, that people refer to convention as their annual shot in the arm uh, that sustains them year-round when they face daily uh, the doubts and uh, reservations that the world has about their ability to to live life. Um, you know, and none of these doubts, none of these reservations uh, come from a malicious motivation. They are they're simply the product of misunderstanding, and we all understand and we all appreciate that. But after a while, it can be, as you might imagine, um, it can be it can be very hard uh, emotionally to uh, to grapple with grapple with that. And um, so, um, yeah, I think that the characterization of the NFB as being uh, vehement or 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 extreme or radical. Uh, is in part uh, to give people that shot in the arm that they do need. And I think it's also, there are a variety of other reasons that the NFB's uh, structure and practices and culture are the way they are. Uh, but but I certainly think that that's certainly one element uh, of why the Federation is the way it is. And for me, it's been invaluable in making sure that uh, during the the months when I don't have uh, interaction with uh, more blind people than I do sighted people, that I can remember uh, clearly that my capacity is not determined by uh, how much vision I have, but by other other aptitude uh, parameters that are more important. You've held a wide number of roles in your life, uh, including you worked for the Social Security Administration, correct? I did. Um, after graduating from law school, uh, as is the case with many people who are blind, um, I experienced three years of unemployment. Um, and I'm not here to tell you that um, I was the top in my law school class. I was not. But I wasn't, the, I wasn't at the bottom either. Um, and there are certainly jobs that I did not secure that were legitimately not given to me because I was not the best candidate. But I think it is also fair to say that I did not find employment um, in some circumstances solely because I was blind. And I think we've all experienced that and, and we intuitively understand it. And so after three years of sort of walking through what I think of as sort of the metaphorical wilderness of um, unemployment and starting to feel despondent about my prospects, 
Uh, I applied uh, despite the discouragement of some who said you don't want to start lower than you're uh, qualified for because it will mean that you'll have to uh, climb a, a longer ladder. I finally decided that if I didn't get into some kind of employment, um, that my prospects would would be limited. And so, I went to work for the Social Security Administration as a contact uh, representative, uh, which is basically a teleservice representative. And I managed the full array of um, social social security questions uh, for people by phone. But then. Again, the NFB played a part and brought me to its national office, made sure that I was intimately familiar with work incentive rules um, that allow blind people to um, work um, while receiving Social Security with the goal of ultimately getting off of the program. And I learned a lot more about Social Security from the NFB than I actually did from my employer. But I was able to um, to capitalize on that knowledge and 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 do well at Social Security. When I felt like I had mastered the teleservice role, and I wanted to see if I could put my legal training to practice, I I volunteered to be um, a union steward uh, for on on behalf of the bargaining unit, and so I did a lot of EEO representation, um, merit system protection board work. Uh, and I always thought that I was objective and was honest with uh, bargaining unit members when they did and did not have a case. But as a consequence of being an active union member, uh, my prospects for um, moving into management at Social Security were, were limited. And, and that was simply the consequence of the decision I made to, to go to work for the union. And that was fine. That was not blindness related. That was simply a a product of, of making a decision about um, aligning myself with the working folk. It's always a dilemma, isn't it, to take a job that you know you're probably underqualified for, but it puts food on the table. I think I would have done what you did because, for me, the dignity of being able to earn a living trumps everything. And you hope that maybe if you can get a foot in the door, you may be able to work your way up. But if you have no foot in the door, you're sitting at home not doing much and feeling like you don't have a sense of purpose. I think, I think you're right. And I think that's ultimately, um, ultimately the decision I made. I, I did some wondering uh, immediately after law school. I moved to a small town in a, in a rural state thinking that I could be a bigger fish in a smaller pond uh, practicing law locally. Um, and I did a little bit of that, but ultimately I, I needed a job that was going to at least sustain me, and I figured if I got into federal service, um, I I would have an avenue for, for moving on. And ultimately, when I uh, mastered the Social Security work and then did some work for uh, the bargaining unit, it gave me advocacy skills uh, that complemented those that the NFB had taught, and uh, I haven't looked back since, but my career has has been unconventional. It has not been, it has not been a, the traditional career that you have once you graduate from law school. From your own experience, and of course all the jobs that you've done that has required you to think about this, it is frustrating, isn't it, that for all of the progress that has been made, and there's been considerable progress, still we have this fundamental issue of other people's perceptions of blindness 
holding us back and causing these dire unemployment statistics. And it seems to me, I don't know whether it's laziness, whether there really has been progress that just isn't being reflected in the stats, but we keep hearing the 70% number all these years later. And I wonder whether we, what, do we just accept that there's nothing that we can do about changing the attitudes of sighted employers towards potential blind employees? Are we just stuck? I think we're not stuck, Jonathan. I think there's cause for optimism. First, uh, I would say that there uh, is no doubt, and I will not dispute, that significant uh, barriers continue to exist uh, for people who are blind or vision impaired uh, in terms of securing employment. We face a lot of social uh, misunderstanding and misconceptions about our capacity, and but but gradually uh, and individually, one person at a time, as ambassadors, we are changing people's perceptions. Um, I think that uh, vocational rehabilitation in the United States has helped some, but not as much as it could because of the paradigm and the structure that the federal program is required to use. Uh, and it, that structure has, has made VR less effective than it might have been had it been created uh, by a different architect. Um, but gradually, I think we are making progress. I also would say that that 70% statistic that you often hear about, um, I think, is no longer the figure uh, that is an accurate reflection. Um, And there certainly is cause for subjective interpretation about what the correct figure is. Uh, But I think probably, uh, and and I've analyzed and synthesized this from a number of points, uh, but I would think that probably of those who want to work, there's still somewhere between a 35 and 40% rate of unemployment. Now, in our current economic uh, climate in the United States where we have a 3.8 or 3.7 percent unemployment rate, 35 or 40 percent is still outrageous. And if it were to be that number for any other identifiable minority group, there would be outcries of of indignation and and outrage. But there was a time when it was 70 to 90%, and I think we have made progress, and I think it's reflected in the statistics. I think, though, that sometimes those higher statistics are used to make a, um, uh, a compelling metaphorical point that we are still way behind in terms of opportunity. Uh, but I think sometimes we do ourselves a disservice when we don't uh, articulate uh, numbers that are, uh, in fact, more reflective of the progress that we've achieved. One of the hypotheses that we hear in countries like New Zealand and the UK and Australia, which have a very different model from the US model, because a lot of the funding for services in those countries comes from charitable giving. So one of the hypotheses that has been advanced over the years is that it's the charitable nature 
of that funding that causes the problem because these agencies have to portray blind people as pitiful creatures worthy of funding. And then, of course, if people dig deep into their pockets and donate so that these services can be provided, if blind people have been portrayed as these needy recipients of charity, why would you employ them? But you don't have that in the United States. I mean, it's it's fascinating to me that in the United States, which is considered to be this sort of laissez-faire, fundamentally private economy, you've got everything government funded. You've got your library services, which, which is one of the most incredible library services in the world, fully government funded. You've got the rehabilitation services that are funded uh, at, by federal government and at a state level, and yet you still have this unemployment problem too. So it can't be just, or if at all, the charity thing. Um, I think it isn't just the charity thing, though I certainly think that the uh, charity model um, and the perception associated with that uh, certainly uh, adds to the conundrum that we face in terms of fighting uh, for employment. Um, if people don't view blind people as uh, equal, contributing, competent parts of the world, but instead as um, as candidates for for philanthropic gesture, uh, then they're not going to believe in us. I sat through an interview when I was just graduating law school uh, with a with a firm, and uh, they welcomed me in. And there was a committee of seven or eight attorneys, and they said, "Mr. Fry, uh, we have a, a table in front of you, and we're all sitting around it. You should know there's a crystal pitcher of water and some glasses on here because these can be." marathon conversations. And I said, thank you very much. I reached out and I poured myself uh, a glass of water without incident. It sounds odd to say that, doesn't it? But <laughs> I just thought it would be good to get something to drink. And there was an audible gasp of uh, amazement. And I said, what is it? And they said, you didn't make a mess. And I said, um, I'm going to say something that is probably going to jeopardize my opportunity for this job. But if your automatic assumption was that I was going to be challenged to pour myself a glass of water, how are you going to be comfortable in giving me latitude to manage your million-dollar lawsuit? And I said, I realize that you don't intentionally or didn't intentionally mean to condescend to me. But if in, at, at an instinctual level, you are impressed with my ability to pour a glass of water, which a seven-year-old could do, then we're gonna, I have a long way to go to persuade you that I can be your equal and add value to your firm. Now, we continued that conversation. I didn't get that job. And it may be that that was a, a white shoe law firm that I might not have legitimately been eligible to join. But I'm sure that my uh, commentary uh, did uh, – it may have done some good, but it may have also led to my not getting that job. Might that have been an overly sensitive response on your part? I mean, sometimes you have to just let these things go, don't you? More often than not, you do. And it may very well have been the product of my being uh, 25 and uh, 
uh, young and seeing things in, in fairly black and white terms, probably at 50 uh, today, that would not have been my reaction. Um, but at the time, uh, when I think when we're younger, we're, we're always a little more uh, we're always a little more animated. We're always a little more driven by our our theory uh, than we are by um, practice. And to be sure, uh, as I mature, as I have matured, uh, I've come to understand that you do have to appreciate that nothing uh, motivated that other than courtesy and and limited exposure to our community, right? Yeah, I'm always mindful of the don't throw the nickel story, which I highly recommend, actually. That was a very good uh, piece that Kenneth Jernigan Dr. Jernigan wrote. wrote. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah. A fun to, it's, it's a really great piece and, and has a good moral to it. Yeah, a little And I think I might have tossed that nickel. Blindness parable there. Yeah. You have done so many things, we can't talk about them all, but I am curious about you coming to New Zealand because that's how I first met you. And that was a pretty bold thing to do, to come to a completely different culture on the other side of the world and do something very different. Jonathan, it has been, I think, of all the things I've undertaken in my life, the most affirming positive and and rewarding experiences after having worked at the social security administration for uh, six years um, i was to the point where i was starting to feel like um, i had reached the height of what i was going to accomplish and so during the course of lunch i started using the internet which was still fairly primitive back in uh, uh, 90 uh, to, or 2001, 2002. Uh, at least I think it was primitive, although I'm not a techie, so you'll, you'll tell me better. Um, but I used the internet and I found an announcement to be the national advocate for the Association of Blind Citizens of New Zealand. I looked at its website and I went home to my spouse, Renee, and I said, sweetie, I have sent in uh, uh, my CV, uh, a resume, and uh, a letter of interest and have applied to be the national advocate for a consumer organization of blind people in New Zealand. And she smiled and she patted me on the arm and said, well, good luck with that, Dan. I'm sure that'll come to pass. <laughs> and three months later, we were organizing for work visas and purchasing tickets and uh, securing at age 34 my first passport, which I appreciate uh, when other people from outside the United States uh, who hear that, they'll think, God, that was late in life. But a lot of us in the United States can be pretty provincial and, and not get our passports. And I was also, again, I grew up somewhat economically disadvantaged. So I got my passport and we went to New Zealand and I went to work for the Association of Blind Citizens of New Zealand. You were a member of its governing um, body and it was my responsibility uh, while there to work with the organization led by blind people to try and create a national strategy for um, improving uh, opportunities for blind people in, uh, in a variety of ways and one of my first assignments was to uh, draft a, a document which evaluated the accessibility of New Zealand in, 
in every respect. And I remember when I got that assignment, I went home and I said, my God, that's huge. But I ended up uh, in concert with the uh, leadership at the, at the organization, uh, writing a book called uh, As We See It, Accessing New Zealand via Non-Visual Means. And it served for a number of years as uh, a guide for what policy work we were going to undertake. It was also fascinating because I had a chance to compare my knowledge of the United States government structure with a parliamentary system, which is much more nuanced because there are eight, nine parties, um, learned a lot about um, dealing with different cultures, uh, recognizing and respecting the, the Maori community in New Zealand, and also just undertaking uh, a task that for people uh, would generally be regarded as a big jump into the unknown. But because of my um, orientation that the NFB had given me, I was confident that with a cane and intellect and an invitation um, that I could in fact go to a new country uh, without knowing anyone and try to, to add value. And I certainly had a number of funny experiences in New Zealand that made it evident that I was uh, uh, an untraveled American. Uh, I went to uh, close the office down the first day I asked my colleague to go home early. I assured her that I could close the office down and I went around and turned all the light switches down and <laughs> came back the next morning and Rose said, you, I came in and every light was burning. And I said, what are you talking about? I was really conscious about making sure I touched everyone. And she said, show me what you did. Well, friends in New Zealand, you flip the light switch. Uh, if you want it to turn off, you flip it up. Uh, here, you flip it down. Uh, just a funny little anecdote that showed you what I had to learn. <laughs> you were here at a really exciting time. We were doing great things because um, I, I, when you arrived, I was the immediate past president of the association, but I think I was chairing the board of the uh, foundation by the time you arrived or was about to. And I was there at a really pivotal time. You had played such a significant role in in modifying the the governance of the New Zealand uh, of the Royal New Zealand Foundation for the Blind, turning it to an organization of the blind, governed by um, blind people, elected by the members of the organization, and that was huge. I mean, can you imagine? In this country, if VR, even though it's run at a state level and it's a hybrid between federal and state f funds, can you imagine if blind people ran their own agencies? But essentially, although it may not have yielded the uh, change you expected it would, it was at the time revolutionary change. And then we also um, undertook significant national um work to modify the blindness education system. Uh, we made progress in rendering ATMs accessible and uh, rendering taxi cabs accessible. But our, our work on the national education front was exciting. And what was really tremendous and what really makes living in New Zealand uh, a great sort of social laboratory is that it was when I was there in 2002 to 2005, a country of about 4 million. And so in a country of that relatively small size, we can do things 
at national scale and see how they work and they can impact an entire nation. And, and that was so amazingly empowering. And, um, and it was a delight to, to work in concert with those that ran the ABC and Z and, and to work uh, in collaboration with the other consumer organizations uh, across the country as well. Um, unlike the United States, um, for those that don't live in New Zealand, there are, there are multiple consumer organizations that attend or target specific things like guide dogs and the like. Um, and so you, you collaborate across, but the ABC and Z was then and still is, I presume, the generalist uh, consumer organization. And I had a fabulous time there. And uh, hopefully, uh, it's not immodest to say that um, my contributions during my three years or so um, made a difference and that the work that has been continued um, uh, sees progress happening in New Zealand on and on. Now, you've done some very interesting things since you've been uh, back, including editing the Braille Monitor for a while, various other roles. I did want to ask you briefly about the Randolph Shepard program, because this is a program that I think people who are interested in the blindness system around the world find interesting. I, I wonder how you feel it squares with the NFB's philosophy, which basically says that you know blind people can stand on their own two feet and achieve if they're given the proper training and opportunity, that there is this government program that essentially gives blind people priority to set up vending facilities in various government locations. Isn't that exactly the opposite of everything that the NFB stands for? It is if you understand the NFB in um, in unyielding uh, and and unnuanced terms. Um, certainly, the NFB would would advocate that if you are well trained and are given opportunities, uh, you ought to be able to succeed uh, as a blind person in any in any field. Um, but the NFB does have more nuance to its um, advocacy than that, and the NFB was instrumental in 1940 in making sure that people who were not experiencing employment, and at that time it was a legitimately 90% rate of unemployment, that they had access to Social Security. Uh, similarly, even though the Randolph Shepard program was founded in 1936, four years before the Federation was founded. The Federation has always supported the Randolph Shepard program, uh, acknowledging that um, the world has yet to catch up with our understanding of what, it, of what a blind person can achieve and recognizing that it is a program that has allowed people to become successful entrepreneurs, uh, running their own businesses, uh, positively influencing public perception by um, engaging with the public as businessmen and women. Um, and, and gradually, the NFB has played a role in uh, the amendments to the act, which 
put blind people through elected committees uh, in charge of partnering with the state agencies. But sure, uh, you can certainly see uh, philosophical conflict, um, but I think those conflicts can be reconciled if you, if you understand that the Federation itself has evolved. When the NFB was initially founded, our purpose was to make sure that stomach and, and mind could be fed. In the middle part of the organization's history, we worked on overt acts of discrimination and advocated for civil rights. Today, um, we, we continue to, at to attend to those elementary but essential things, but also now work on um, more subtle issues like the right of blind parents to be parents without being molested by well-intended uh, people who don't understand that we can take care of our children. Um, so the organization has evolved as society has evolved and our policies and priorities have shifted as we have made progress. And God knows I can at the end of some days wonder if we have made progress, but we now have blind people who work at NASA. We now have blind people who are professors of mathematics. We have blind people who are lawyers, and that's pretty humdrum. But we have blind people who are doing all kinds of things that would have never been previously imagined. And so I think the Federation has been more pragmatic than some people think in the sense that we engaged and accepted and worked with programs that um, were necessary to allow us to move from absolute dependency to today where we hope that most people can, with a good dose of advocacy uh, and encouragement, achieve what they want. Pragmatism is important, and so, of course, is principle. So do you think there will ever come a time when the NFB goes to the federal government and says, you know, this was a useful program, it had its day, and it was an important day, but now we feel that blind people don't need this kind of hand up in this way anymore because we've advanced sufficiently? I think that the, um, that the supreme... Uh, the supreme deliberative body of the NFB uh, is the convention that occurs on a national level. Uh, and every year there are resolutions that address one thing or another. And I think that I hope, I very much hope that at some point in the future, we will get to a point where blind uh, aspirants to be uh, self-employed entrepreneurs have that opportunity. And I can conceive of a time when in the future we might say that that would, um, that would, that would be the case, that this was a, a useful program but is no longer necessary. I don't know when that will occur, and I don't know. Uh, there'll, there'll have to be a consensus on when we've achieved that goal. Um, and while I think we've made tremendous progress, I still think that there is need for, for a program like the Randolph Shepherd program. I think what's important to also understand about the Randolph Shepherd program is the expectation of that program. Unlike a lot of other programs that 
have blind or otherwise disabled people working in uh, sort of uh, first level jobs. The objective of the Randolph Shepherd program is to put people in executive level businesses. Now, when it first started in 36, they were small stands that sold candy and newspapers. Today, the Randolph Shepherd program sees blind entrepreneurs managing food services on military dining bases, uh, juggling budgets of $30 million, or uh, operating food services in the national parks. Uh, so the nature of the Randolph Shepherd program has, has grown as the program has grown, and as we as blind people have persuaded the community that we can, in fact, succeed. So sure, um, I, I can see the the principle that, that you're pointing to. And I think in closing, I would say that I hope a day will come when that can happen. Could the reverse also be true, though? Could it be that the Randolph Shepard program has been so successful that it's actually a blueprint and that there should be other affirmative action programs in other areas? Well... I think I think that's right. I mean, until we have, until we can secure um, an equal playing field, and I don't know that that can ever be achieved uh, fully, but until we have substantial progress in that arena, um, you know, when I was in New Zealand, Jonathan, we were talking about uh, the cost, the social cost of blindness, and we did an analysis of that, or we were involved with that. And it's not something that's been addressed as directly in the United States in, in, that, in that context. But I think there are social costs to blindness as a personal, from a personal perspective. Uh, and I think that there are examples of programs that should exist that mitigate the social costs of blindness so that we can participate. And Randolph Shepard may very well be an example of that as is social security disability and as are uh, a number of programs. But the Randolph Shepard program is, look, it has employed over uh, 60,000 people uh, in, in the last uh, 78 years of, it, of its existence. But it's also, uh, I think this stat will be uh, interesting and will really speak to this conversation piece. The uh, uh, Randolph Shepard program had in the middle 70s, about 4,500 managers in it. Today, statistics have been released that show that there are about 1,839 people in the program. Now, part of that is that there's been downsizing of federal government uh, offices, but part of it is that blind people have found other business opportunities outside of Randolph Shepard, uh, and part of it is uh, that opportunities in other careers are now more available. Um, and so the program has has diminished in size. Um, but I still think there is a need for it. And I think that um, that those that are active in it and and use it in the spirit in which it was created um, really represent the best of our community. One of the reasons why I've been keen to get you on the blind side for some time now, when you've been ready to, is your departure from the New Jersey 
Commission for the Blind, where you were commissioner. But before I get to that specifically, uh, tell me about some of the achievements that you are most proud of in that role. I had the genuine pleasure of directing the New Jersey Commission for the Blind and Visually Impaired from uh, October of 2013 until January of 2018. And during my four and a half year tenure, um, we made tremendous progress in a number of areas. Unlike a lot of vocational rehabilitation agencies around the country, um, New Jersey is one of only three or four states that uh, is also responsible not only for providing uh, rehabilitation and independent living services to the adult blind and vision impaired community, but we also are responsible for delivering services to blind and vision impaired students in grades K to 12. Uh, and we do that in New Jersey by having a contract between the commission who employs the teachers of the vision impaired and, and assigns them to students in the local public school instead of having the public school hire the teachers and work at a local level. When I came to the commission, there were substantial uh, issues with the agency uh, providing the high-quality blindness education that is necessary. And it seemed to me that if we could manage well both blindness education and rehab, and we had control over both ends of the productivity system, that we could really uh, turn out well-prepared, uh, competent, poised, blind people. And so over the course of the first 18 months, I created the Education Reform Task Force. We had some, uh, it was consisted of parents of blind children, um, academics in the uh, teacher preparation program in the state, some of our own teachers, um, uh, students who were um, old enough to contribute, um, administrators at the agency, and other stakeholders. And we had really no holds barred deliberation, but we made some significant changes where the commission became uh, not only the administrator of teachers, but made sure that we were also the advocate, f advocate for students through our teachers in the IEP process. We made a number of reforms that I think now see uh, New Jersey providing incredibly improved blindness education to children. And I'm very proud of that. And it was hard work because it required um, an acknowledgement by a lot of folks that uh, things had to change. And people, of course, are always apprehensive about change. And they think that it um, may reflect negatively on them. And I said, look, let's not think about this is an indictment of anything. Let's think about this as creating new opportunities for the kids that are coming. And we are now in compliance with the, edu with the federal IDEA uh, Special Education Act, and we're doing good work. Similarly, I think um, we created, uh, a, consistent with the new federal rehabilitation law that's out now called the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, which mandates that VR spend 15% of its federal grant on pre-employment transition services, we created a program um, that I called EDGE. It was an acronym for Employment, Development, Guidance, and Engagement um, for kids in grades 9 to 12. And 
uh, every child or student that participated in this program had access to a blind mentor. They met on a monthly basis in person for a day-long seminar. They met every other week by phone to talk about social skills, um, uh, academic skills, technology, and the like. And during the year or in the summer or after school on Saturdays, uh, in the junior and senior years of your participation in the EDGE program, you had a paying job, which so many blind and vision impaired students don't have by the time that they get to college, and it's a real disadvantage. And EDGE makes sure that those who participate and want to do a job have one so that when they go to school, they've already worked like their sighted peers. And EDGE has been transformative in the lives of uh, young students who are either going to start college or who are going to go to a trade school or do something else after high school. And I'm, I'm proud of that. And I guess the last thing I would point to is that we, um, we enhanced um, our expectations of what we wanted to have our vocational rehabilitation and independent living older blind program to do. Um, I basically said um, we're going to remove any restrictive rules. We're going to encourage our counselors to say to our consumers, what's your dream? Uh, I used to go around from uh, office to office and say, I know this sounds simplistic, but we are in the position of being a dream-making factory. And when someone comes in, and needs blindness training, and once we've persuaded them that they're going to be successful as a blind person, then we want to talk to them about what their dreams are. Don't ask them what their skill sets are. Um, I mean, you may want to do that in the course of ultimately getting to their dream, but let's start with what their biggest ambitions are. And I think that cultural shift made us start to place people in jobs uh, that were not just the conventional jobs. We, we tried to encourage people to understand that the commission was going to, at least under my leadership, uh, be a partner in helping them achieve their highest expectations. And that's largely based on my early experience of being told that my highest expectations were not achievable. Back in... November, just before Election Day 2016, I gave a keynote address at a meeting that you had organized in New Jersey. And one of the things that Bonnie and I took away from that was that the organization did appear really to be humming and that a lot of staff that spoke to us were very positive about the leadership of the commission by you. Now, I don't think it's any secret to say you're a pretty left-leaning guy, right? I mean, you are uh, <laughs> you are a lifelong Democrat. Always have been uh, right. a lifelong Democrat, yeah. Right, and you were appointed by Republican governor, former governor now, Chris Christie. Why was that? Does it reflect some sort of nonpartisanship on his part, or why would Christie appoint someone like you? Um, Governor Christie um, had, in practical terms, um, a pretty significant degree of confidence uh, in his um, commissioners and 
In New Jersey, the Commission for the Blind is housed in the Department of Human Services. And um, I was hired by the Deputy Commissioner uh, for Human Services, who had, among her other responsibilities, two other divisions and the Commission for the Blind. And the Commission was founded in 1910 um, uh, as a result of testimony given by Helen Keller uh, and has existed uh, even for, you know, t 10 years or more before the first VR Act came out. Uh, and so the commission has been an apolitical part of New Jersey's government for as long as I can remember. When I, um, when I applied for the job, um, no one asked me about my political affiliation and I didn't volunteer it. And I did inquire about the security of the job because uh, they were transparent in telling me that I was in a political position. But they also made it clear that never in the history of the commission, uh, and I was only the seventh executive director uh, in, in its history, uh, never in the history of the commission had uh, a governor during the course of a change in administration uh, asked for and accepted the resignation of uh, the executive director of the commission, that the changes uh, happened at the assistant commissioner level and above, but but not at the commission level because it was acknowledged that our role that our role was apolitical and that we were not we were not governed by uh, by politics of a conventional nature. And in the most recent election, Governor Christie was not eligible for re-election anyway, correct? That's right. Yeah, and um, He would probably un so, unlikely to have been elected anyway, but that's a moot point, I suppose. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that he would probably would not have been elected. And as, as everyone knows, uh, he was um, a lightning rod. Uh, he was uh, certainly outspoken, and he was uh, part of the uh, 17 or 18 candidates that ran for president. Uh, and as a consequence, uh, his lieutenant governor, Kim Guadagno, uh, ran against Phil Murphy. Um, and it was pretty evident uh, throughout the entirety of the uh, election cycle that um, Phil Murphy was going to win. Uh, people had grown weary of uh, Governor Christie's um, uh, rhetoric and and behavior um people felt that the uh, state had been um subject to a number of cuts um and it's probably not necessary for me to comment on the substance of that except to say that because governor christie uh had such a national uh, reputation and was so um had the and and succeeded in alienating a number of people that the that the hostility between the incoming administration and the outgoing administration was probably uh historically record setting uh where normally the uh transition uh has been fairly um civil and amicable as civil and amicable as any uh, politics in New Jersey can be. Uh, this one was certainly more intense because of Governor Christie's national reputation. Right. But nevertheless, on election night, when somebody from the party you affiliate with, even though 
that didn't have really any impact on your performance in the past, the fact that you were working under a Republican governor. When a Democrat was elected, you must have been thinking, okay, well, then uh, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing here in New Jersey. Exactly. And if if I'm being honest, I thought, and perhaps I'll even have um, additional resources uh, to do good things. Um, I was... Um, I was happy to see uh, Phil Murphy uh, win uh, at a personal level. Um, I, I, it wasn't my uh, – I was not involved politically because of my role. Uh, but at a personal level, I was optimistic that uh, Phil Murphy was going to bring a progressive perspective back to New Jersey politics after eight years of, of Governor Christie's leadership. Tell me about – how you first became aware that you were going to be ousted from that role by a Democratic governor? In anticipation of the transition, everyone who held a political role um, was directed to submit a letter of resignation. Uh, we were all advised that that was a fairly routine request and that by and large, um, uh, it was done as a courtesy to the governor to give uh, the successful candidate an opportunity to place people in positions um, uh, of that, that, that are political in nature. Uh, but we were also told that if we wanted to remain, that we should use the letter uh, not just as a template uh, to, to honor a specific um, task, but we should use it as uh, outline some of our accomplishments, uh, signal our genuine desire to stay, and talk about what we'd achieved and how we had hoped, how we hoped to continue working. So I certainly used my uh, letter uh, to uh, try to achieve those things. Talked a lot about what we'd accomplished, uh, signaled my um, allegiance to a progressive point of view, and mostly indicated that the work of our organization had and always should remain apolitical and that I was happy to continue leading uh, and submitted the letter as requested. On the 15th of January, um, Martin Luther King Day, we were on leave and in New Jersey, Inauguration Day was Tuesday the 16th. Um, we had been given reason to believe on Friday of that uh, weekend um, that the governor was going to relieve more political appointees than had traditionally been the case, but no one knew who. Uh, on Monday the 15th, I received a letter um, that said, Dear Sir slash Madam, thank you for your service. Your resignation has been accepted. Uh, please contact your human resources office for instructions on um, being mustered out of state service. I called my commissioner to inquire if this was accurate, and uh, through uh, tears and some surprise, she said, it appears that it is, and it looks like, uh, she said, that Almost anyone who was hired during the Christie administration was asked to leave. Um, at that point, it was hard to make that um, assessment entirely because we were we were gaining information in real time. But 
uh, as time passed and we've had a chance to look back on it in, in retrospect, it appears that uh, the Murphy administration did make um, a pretty sweeping general decision to remove anyone who was appointed during Christie's time uh, without regard to the merit of our performance. So it was a blunt instrument and it was delivered with a simple form letter that didn't even have your name in it. <laughs> yeah, it was it was not managed in the most uh, diplomatic way for sure. And yeah, I'm afraid it was a pretty blunt uh, instrument that uh, lacked nuance and um I think given the time that they had to prepare to become uh, the next administration, I was surprised by that because there was very little doubt during the course of the election where there was some question about the uh, about other things. There was little doubt that he would become the governor, so I would have thought he would have had time to evaluate um, candidates uh, more more carefully, uh, but it appears that um, most of us that were appointed by the Christie administration, even if we had never met Governor Christie, and in my case, I never did, um, uh, it appears that we were simply let go. This process where you are asked to submit your resignation, what would have happened if you had declined to do that? Oh, we were told if if we didn't submit the uh, mandated letter of resignation that we would have been uh, fired. Okay. That that would have caused us to be fired. So submitting it was was not an option. Um, it was it was a directive. Right. And and so we did that. What options, if any, were there for redress? Could you have or did you seek a meeting? with the governor uh, to try and plead your case? What options exist in that situation? I was, I feel very fortunate that the blindness community, uh, without regard to consumer affiliation, um, generally came together uh, and registered serious concern that I was removed. Um, obviously, I felt like I could not play a public part in that um, in that uh, exercise because it would have seemed self self interested. But the community registered uh, concern with the governor's office, with members of the legislature, and um, and other uh, political leaders across the state, uh, and. Uh, there were uh, resolutions written about it, and there were a lot of uh, calls made. Um, but it appears that a decision simply had been made. And Jonathan, I mean, as far as I know, um, I was simply the victim of this uh, fairly blunt, um, non-nuanced instrument. Uh, there are some folks that say that there may have been a few people who thought um, that some of the things I were doing or was doing were not um, were not in the best interest of the commission, and they may have registered their concerns. But that's all been speculation and rumor, and I've never been able to confirm it. I was insisting, uh, much to the uh, chagrin of some of our TVI staff that they all be 
certified in UEB Braille, um, which um, is you know a new a new standard as of 2016. And I wanted all of our staff to uh, be tested and take a certified national test because I thought that would distinguish us as blind educators. Obviously, that expectation created some some angst among our teachers, even though I offered to pay for their testing, I offered to make sure they had time for training, and I made it clear that failing a test didn't mean they couldn't take it again, but I wanted us to be well-credentialed. So some people were angry about that. Uh, I was also known for pushing hard at our training center, insisting that our students uh, really uh, excel and and work hard and and expand their their training time and make sure they took full advantage of it. So while you observed, and I think generally uh, you observed while you came uh, to our statewide staff development seminar, uh, a lot of contentment, I think there was that. But I was also a hard-driving executive director, and there may have been those who who found the intensity of my administration tough, and I can't tell you that they may not have registered concerns. But I can tell you this, that, you know, like every other candidate that was not invited to stay, uh, I was eligible for uh, unemployment. And um, the state did not object to that, which makes me think that um, that there was nothing that was brought to anyone's attention that was so damaging that the state decided to engage in a punitive campaign against me personally. And in a role like this, you know, um, being callous and cold and just blunt about it, you served at the pleasure of the governor, right? And so you knew that when you got into it, but at a personal level – it must be incredibly demoralizing and upsetting, I would imagine. I think that's right. It certainly stings um, when you have put your heart and soul into um, trying to mold and fashion um, opportunities for blind people first to become well-trained so that they can simply live their lives. And after securing their training uh, to acquire education and ultimately to be successful candidates for for a wide array of jobs. Uh, I loved that work. I felt like I was giving back in ways that I had received. And I think we made substantial cultural change at the commission that had not been made in a long time. And that's not a negative commentary on my, on those that came before me, but I think I left my signature there and I wasn't finished. Um, But you're right. Um, You absolutely serve at the pleasure of the governor. Uh, Governor Murphy did nothing uh, illegal by not by accepting my resignation. Uh, It wasn't particularly polite, but I also appreciate that, you know, when you're when you're managing a state, um, one one agency, uh, one executive director probably doesn't you know, get a lot of attention. And I absolutely understood that that my role was political. I was just disappointed that uh, I was uh, only only getting started. Um, And yet, having had four years to do the work we did, I think within that time frame, 
We adopted fairly quickly after I started a strategic plan, and by the time I uh, abruptly departed, uh, we had achieved about 90% of it. So I feel like it was a wonderful experience. The people of New Jersey, uh, the blind people with whom I worked, uh, who were our consumers, and my staff, both blind and sighted, uh, were a pleasure to work with. They were keen to um, be part of making the lives of our consumers improved, and uh, with very few exceptions, um, they were they were the consummate professionals. And I'm optimistic and hopeful that the commission will continue its century plus tradition of delivering high quality services for blind people in the state. The agency is now on its third solicitation for an executive director to fill the vacancy that was created when I was asked to leave. Uh, and while uh, at a personal level, I might occasionally feel a slight bitterness about that, um, I'm actually really hopeful that they find a competent leader who can continue the work that we've achieved because I don't want to see that deteriorate. And that's Dan Fry, part one of that interview. In part two, we'll be talking about the National Federation of the Blinds Convention, like I promised that we would, and we'll also have a look at some of the latest things going on with Ira. With your help, it'll be another epic episode next week. See you then. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting, on the web at mosin.org.